is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners, for another week. And uh, I don't think we've been together for a while, Andy. Yeah, it's good to be back with you, Terry. Looking forward to another podcast. We've been kind of all over the place, haven't we? Had yeah, we have. A number of great uh, podcasts that we've done. The Livia podcast was fantastic. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that incredible miracle. You want to go back to that? Yeah, for sure. t- take a listen to that. We've got more stuff coming. And in fact, you want to tell us a little bit about what we got on the horizon, Terry? Well, the... Human Project for Kids podcast. Yes. We have just finished the second season. Season two. Season two. Just uh, recorded the fourth episode. So that should be coming out. Before the conference or around the, the conference, we want to launch it as a part of the conference. So be looking for that. Yeah, it's going to be great. We love doing these. It's been great having kids on the show with uh, Rachel and Reese. They're the ones who, who lead that. And it's been great. So today we have a guest on the line, and we are really happy to have him and talk with him. He just came out with a new book called Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. This is Addison D. Bevere on the line with us. Welcome, Addison. Guys, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. So you are a CEO of the Messenger International and the co-founder of Sons and Daughters. Can you just tell us a little bit about those ministries and maybe just a little bit about yourself and uh, your family and where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. So I I am the COO of Messenger International, and uh, it's a lot of fun what we get to do. Our philosophy, our belief is that every single one of us, we're messengers. We're called to tell a story. Our lives tell a story. And ultimately, that story is the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. So we're passionate about helping people discover what it means to tell their story well. So we work with tens of thousands of churches in the United States and Canada and around the world uh, to aid them in their discipleship efforts. We have podcast networks. We have a production company. We translate our resources into over 100 languages and distribute them free of charge uh, to pastors and leaders all over the world. In fact, over the last seven years, we've been able to give away over 30 million translated resources to places like Iran and Vietnam and India and China and uh, many persecuted countries, which which is amazing and a huge privilege and a lot of fun to do. So that's what we do at Messenger International. And then I was a part of co-founding Sons and Daughters, which is an extension or expression of Messenger that really targets millennials, young adults, taking the truths, taking the ideas that we hold dearly at Messenger and formatting them and communicating them in a way that speaks to that like 18 to 30 year old range. And uh, I'm married, I've been married for 12 years, have four amazing kids, two boys, two girls. I actually, speaking of apologetics, I actually led my wife to the Lord, uh, which which is a pretty crazy story, but uh, I got to lead her to the Lord. I'm not necessarily recommending that the people <laughs> listening to this podcast do that. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> It happened to work. <laughs> in my case, we had a mutual friend, and I'm not kidding you. This was the mutual friend's play was, hey, if I can introduce Addison and Julie, I think Addison will lead Julie to the Lord. And wow. That's, and that's what happened. Yeah. And we got married. She actually ended up going to Bible school. She didn't even know what John 3.16 said. And then after we uh, 
we met and hung out. She's like, I need to go to Bible school, went to Bible school, and we got married. It's a crazy story. You are located oh, yeah. in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So surely I'm hoping you get outdoors some. And- <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I love the outdoors. Uh, we take we take the family out quite a bit, although we're not skiers. And anytime someone who doesn't live in a place that offers skiing, when they hear that, they're like, how? How do you live in a place like Colorado and not go skiing all the time? And I, I really don't have a good answer for that, other than maybe it's super expensive and a lot of work with four kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just that pragmatic side of me. But I, I need to get over that. My wife and I were actually just talking about it a couple of days ago. We were sledding. And she was like, we really do need to take our kids skiing. So we're going to do that. I, I, you know, I can appreciate that because I got two boys myself. And I remember when I took them skiing for the first time, I realized – you know, that I basically strap sleds to their feet and I'm pointing them down this giant mountain. And Have it's, fun. Kind of, it's ter- yeah, it's terrifying. So I, uh, I'm like trying to, I'm just keeping up with them the whole time, ready to like catch them or like tackle them if I need to so they don't missile down this mountain. But uh, yeah, so I could appreciate with four, you're outnumbered. Uh, and so, so that's, badly. that's, you know, so that's pretty, I think that's something to be concerned about uh, yeah. with <laughs> four missiles shooting down the mountain. Uh, it's great to have you on the show and to be able to talk about this new book that you've written. And I thought, you know, as we jump into your book here, one of the first questions that I, I just wanted you to address is why did you write the book and who's your target audience? Yeah, I, <laughs> I get that question a lot. Like, why would you write a book about saints? Like, wh- like what, what is it about saints? And, and for me, I'll answer that question first and I'll go into target audience. For me, if I could be completely honest, y'all, y'all seem like safe people. So I'm, I'm <laughs> bring I up, am. Bring I don't know about Terry. No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Well, Andy, then this is directed at you. Uh, Terry, I hope, I hope you could put up with this. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've been raised in a Christian home. Phenomenal parents, phenomenal parents who, who've led beautiful lives, who, um, who've, who've led all of us boys where there's four of us. Um, and, and grace and truth, and, and they've, they've been open to our questions and willing to journey with us in a profound way. But probably ever since I was like 13, I have not liked calling myself a Christian. I just haven't. And it's not that I'm ashamed of Jesus. Like, I think Jesus is the one person who got this whole humanity thing right. I love following in his footsteps. I love studying his word. I love figuring out what it means for me to follow him today in this world. What I don't like is I don't like the stereotypes and the stigmas and the labels that have attached themselves to, quote unquote, cultural Christians. So if you just Google, I mean, y'all know this, this is the world that you live in. But if you Google the phrase Christians are, you'll find words like judgmental, hateful, hypocritical, uneducated, and a list of descriptors that really are less than favorable and honestly don't reflect the life and the message that Jesus embodied and shared with us during his time on the earth and, and the life that we're called to embrace as his followers. So I've never really liked that term. In fact, like when I'm on planes and, and people, they start talking about the two things you're not supposed to talk about on planes, politics or religion. And they ask me like, so what's your religious practice? I always squirm in my seat. I'm like, I don't know if I want to say Christian. So I say things like I'm a follower of Jesus And there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with the term Christian. I just think because it's been claimed by so many who don't actually follow Christ, it's become a confusing term. And in many ways, it's become a cultural term. So 
several years ago, I was reading a great book, and I, I stumbled across the term saint in the book. And the author used the word saint in a way that I had never seen before. Up to this point, when I thought of a saint, I thought of dead people. I thought of the Catholic Church. I thought of stained glass windows, people with halos on their heads. I basically thought of anyone but me. But I read, I read this descriptor of a saint, and it was people who practice and participate in the mystery of the final day. And I was like, hmm, people who practice and participate in the mystery of the final day. And I could sense that God's Spirit was telling me, do a deep dive. Dive into that word. There's something there that I want you to see. And I did. And what I, what I found, and y'all know this, what I found is that the word saint is used over 60 times in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus. The word Christian is used only three times, twice in Acts, once in First Peter. And so, for me, I was like, okay, so what's the significance of this identifier? Like, why did Paul, primarily Paul was the one who used it, like, why would he open his letters with this proclamation of identity? Why would he say to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome, like, what's the significance of him calling his audience saints, of him inviting them to be saints? Like, what does that mean for us today? And that really was the genesis for this book. So you, uh, actually, there's one quote in your, in your book. It says, by the power of God's eternal spirit, you can become a saint, someone whose life is marked by hope and a purpose that astound our world and point people to the one who is life. So why do you think the Christian culture as a whole doesn't identify with the term saint? I think one of the reasons is it's been reserved for a select few. Um, it's been it's been used in many ways to to feed an elitism that's that's really ugly in religion, and so when people think of the term saint, they think of anyone but themselves. Like it's it belongs to a group of people that that died, that lived a good life, that are good ideals, but it's not a practical way to live. It, it doesn't make sense in our everyday lives, which is tragic because if you look at the way Paul used the word, he was saying like, "Hey, you're a saint now." And this identifier, this new way of looking at yourself, it invigorates the mundane. It changes everything about your everyday lives. And that's why he would go into these brilliant discourses in his, in his letters and talk about what it means to be a saint in Corinth, what it means to be a, a saint in Ephesus or Philippi. And, and so, it's sad to me that we've lost the flavor and we've lost the significance of that word because we have reduced it to just this idea that belongs in a gross expression of, of religion. You know, it reminds me of a speaking engagement that I did recently where I was asked to address the question, is there life after death? And I, and I wanted to come at it from a little bit different perspective. And so, I asked the question, you know, is there life before death? And it's really this idea, and, I, and I, as I was reading your book, I, I, I really got this sense of, hey, listen, you can live and experience the Christian life now, you know, with yes. being a saint. A saint isn't something that, you know, you just experience when you die, and sadly, I think there are a lot of Christians that just kind of live this idea. Oh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm living for death because then it's gonna get good, or then, right. I, you know, then I'll be a saint, or or whatever. However, you want to look at that. Well, but no, it's something that starts now. Yeah, and there's this escapism mentality that's so sad, where it's like, hey, I'm just trying to get through life. I'm trying to get to heaven one day, which is the ultimate aim. And we completely miss the big idea of scripture, which is God's kingdom being established on the earth. Like when we look at eschatology, when we look at where this is all going, it's this idea of a marriage between heaven and earth. And, and the saints are the people who practice and participate in the mystery of that final day. 
So if you look at passages like Hebrews 11, where it talks about these people who the world wasn't worthy of, but because the world wasn't worthy of them, they were exactly what the world needed because they were disrupted. Their one common attribute is they could see the unseen. And that's the thing about a saint. A saint is someone who is in tune with God's heart for this world. They see things not just as they are, but as they could be and they should be. And they work toward practical demonstrations of God's kingdom being revealed here and now. I mean, we got to remember, Jesus would make comments like the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a reality. It's a way of seeing the world through God's sovereign rule that changes everything. And that's why it was Jesus's favorite subject. And that's why saints are people, essentially people of the kingdom, because they practice and participate in the mystery of the kingdom. And when we see these prophetic promises, like in Isaiah, 11, Habakkuk 2, that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Like That's what we should be working toward. That's why we have to break down the barriers between the secular and sacred. That's why we have to understand how to speak to our cultural needs, how to speak to the real issues facing our world today, because we're called to go into that world and be ambassadors of the good news. And that doesn't mean we just collect people and put them in church on Sunday mornings. That's one of the things that I really do appreciate and like about using this term saint is it gives you that sense of higher calling and the importance of what it means to follow Christ, where in our culture today, as you were alluding to there and talking about with, you know, not liking the term Christian, it has definitely taken on all sorts of cultural baggage that can mean not not only does it mean all sorts of things to culture, but sadly, it means all sorts of things to Christians. And in some ways, has become just a religious term instead of, you know, this holy calling following after a holy God. That's right. And I think, again, like there's nothing wrong with the term Christian. Like, I just want to be clear about that. I'm talking about cultural, this idea of cultural Christianity. But the way we view our walk with Jesus, like our right saying with God, it just becomes so self-centric. It's all about me. It's all about not feeling bad about myself. It's all about having a calling. It's all about going to heaven one day. And the reality is, when you look at the gospel message, and I, and I love the way Jesus brings this out in Luke 9, it's like, no, deny yourself, die to self, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, like, get over yourself by laying down your opinion of yourself at the cross, take on this identity, believe what I say about you, start to see yourself the way I see you. And as you do that, you're going to see a world that I love. And when we look at Jesus, like Jesus loved sinners so much that they wanted to be around him, even though he called them higher. He made them uncomfortable, and he did this by dignifying the marginalized. He lifted up the downtrodden and oppressed. He healed the broken. He invited everyone from society's elites, those forgotten on the fringes, into a higher way of being, one rooted in this idea of an otherworldly kingdom. And so, when I look at the followers of the New Testament, I see a group of people who embraced this kingdom— and were turning the world upside down. They were subverting cultural norms. They were disruptors. And I think that's what we have to embrace today. We're not called to just live in our little cultural Christian bubbles and feel good about the fact that we're going to heaven one day. Like We have got to start to view ourselves differently to find the mission and the purpose that was written on our hearts that we were created for here and now, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, as God's ambassadors. We're the ones revealing this message of reconciliation and hope and promise to a world that's looking for good news. So, we know that God can speak to us through many different ways. And in your book, you relate an instance how God spoke to you. And you have four kids right now, and it seems probably that you're reading a lot of children's books. <laughs> and, you, and you said that God spoke to you through 
green eggs and ham. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Tell us that about that experience and how that led you closer to God. Or uh, guys, this is serious exegetical. This work is here. this is. <laughs> we're keeping it real here. Uh, well, you're clearly reading the books Terry's reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so <laughs> so I've probably read that book 50, 70, 100 times to my kids. And for the, our listeners out there who don't know this story, I got to give a quick recap. So it's a really simple book. I think it has 50 unique words. Dr. Seuss made a bet with his editor that he could write a book with less than 50 unique words, and he won the bet. And it's basically the story of Sam I Am trying to convince the grumpy old man to try green eggs and ham. And he takes the grumpy old man through all these different locations and sceneries and scenarios trying to get him to try green eggs and ham. Finally, at the end, they crash into a large body of water. And the grumpy old man agrees to try green eggs and ham just to get Sam off his back. He tries green eggs and ham. He loves it and spends the rest of the book telling Sam I am that he would eat green eggs and ham in every place that he previously said he wouldn't eat it. That's the story. Okay. So I'm walking, I'm walking out of the room. I'm shutting the door. And, and God whispers something into my spirit. He says, I'm a lot like Sam I am. And I was like, huh? <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what, God, you are. You have this amazing gift of salvation that you continue to offer to the world again and again and again, despite the world's rejection of this gift. And I could sense the Holy Spirit was saying, like, you're making this a macro idea. You're making it a corporate concept. Like, I want to make this very personal, very specific to you. And then it hit me like, no, actually, I'm the grumpy old man. God has this amazing gift of salvation that is so multifaceted that reaches into every corner of my being. And I've been content to just partake of the pieces of it or components of it that were safe or familiar. And I was reminded of what James writes in James 121, where he says, receive with meekness, receive with humility, the implanted word, which has the power to save your soul or your vitality. And that, that word there for word in the Greek, of course, is logos. And he's saying, receive with meekness or humility, the complete full message of Jesus. John 1, in the beginning was the word logos, like receive with humility that message. And as you do, as you continue to receive with humility, that implanted word that's already inside of you, every single facet of your soul, every single facet of your being will start to realize the gift of salvation, how far it reaches into our everyday lives. And it's so sad to me that we have this idea of the journey of salvation. We have this idea of, oh, well, there's that moment of conversion. And basically after that, we're just trying to hold on for dear life. We're just trying to not lose that first love. But this this journey in God and this journey with the Holy Spirit, it's a journey into the depths of who God is and the depths of His heart for our world, for our individual lives. And and so that's a journey worth exploring. And it's something that only gets bigger and more robust and more meaningful as we take the dive. And so that's God, God used Green X and God to, to that. <laughs> Love it. There you go. So, Love it. <laughs> one of the things that I think is so important about this idea is, I mean, this is, this is an essential aspect of what faith is, is that we're trusting who God is and we're trusting that what he said is true. And this idea that human flourishing is not going to take place unless you place your trust in him, trust what he's saying, that in fact, this is the good life. This is the good way to live. And this is something that you talk about in your book, Addison. You talk about this idea of the good life. And one of the quotes that you said, and I just would love for you to talk on this, is you said, we will not find the good life until we leave our notions of goodness behind. 
Can you talk about this and, and this idea? Okay, yeah. what, what does it look like to trust God in his idea of what the good life looks like? Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you use the, the term flourishing because like even going way back, that idea of telos, like flourishing, like this is what it means to be fully human. This is what it means to be fully alive. We all crave that. We've been looking for the good life since the beginning. And if you look at like the best-selling books and the top podcasts, you'll find this theme of the good life woven in in some way. And that's because we crave it. We were designed for it. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that eternity was written on our hearts. So there's an expansiveness inside of us that cannot be denied. And the typical response to this is to find the good life or attempt to try the good life at the altars of sex, stuff, and status. Right, first John 2, the whole idea of lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. I like to call it sex stuff and status. I appreciate the alliteration and it's easier to remember. So, <laughs> if you look at everything, everything in our world, really, like everything in our world, I'm talking within Christendom and outside of it, you find this chase or this pursuit of sex stuff and status. And people wouldn't actually say this, but I think there's this common belief that like, if I can get the magical elixir of these three, then I'm going to flourish. Like I'm going to find the good life that I crave. And if we study human history, we can see very easily see that this pursuit has left people spent and wanting. And that's because the good life, it isn't something you find. It isn't something you achieve. It's someone you become. And when you look at Jesus's invitation to find life, it was very paradoxical. It was basically like, let go of your notion of life. Let go of what you think is good and follow me. I mean, that was, that was his interaction with the rich young ruler. He's like, look, no one's good except the father. Well, that's, I mean, is Jesus basically saying that he's not like Jesus isn't good? What Jesus is responding to is the rich young ruler's idea of goodness. He's saying, based on your idea of goodness, like you don't even know where to start. Like we can't even begin this conversation. And so I do start the book with this idea of the good life because we're all chasing it. And I want people to see that when we trade our notion of goodness for God's intended design for flourishing, we wake up. And I love I love how Paul hits that in First Corinthians 15, I think it's 34, where he talks about like, wake up, wake up to the holiness of life, wake up to the beauty of life. I love this invitation that Jesus gives us to die now, to die in this present time. And in Christ, death isn't a thief of the future. It's not like we're giving up our future. It's actually an awakening or a gift of the present. It's the ability to see what really matters now. It's the ability to awaken to what is most important now. It's the ability to see opportunities and relationships and meaning and purpose through the lens that's so much bigger than the problems and the struggles and the smallness of today. And that's what I'm inviting people into in the first chapter. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, 
let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. I loved how you brought us through the first seven chapters of your book. Then you get to the eighth chapter, and you start talking about God's love language. So what is that love language of God, and how does that deepen our relationship with Him? Yeah. Well, Andy, you actually hit on it earlier, It's and I, and I could share this story, but it's faith. God is love, and faith is His love language. He reveals His love for us. He reveals His love for this world through faith. And when God showed me that, it, it wrecked me. I remember when He first shared that with me, I went to Hebrews eleven six, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I'm like, okay, like, pleasure, like, we please you, and <laughs> we have faith for you. And I'm trying to think through, like, Gary Chapman's five love languages and how any of this makes sense. And then God, <laughs> God, God took me back to Hebrews eleven one, where it talks about how faith is the conviction, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And I was like, wow, God, that's that's how you work with us. You call those things not just as they are, but as they could be and as they should be. You speak to us prophetically from this place of knowing and this place of understanding, and you guide us into the fullness of everything that you have for us. And then, I mean, when you see something like in 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about faith, hope, and love, and how they are essentially virtues or elements of the eternal, it makes sense why those three things, faith, hope, and love, reveal eternity in this present time. Because when we align our lives with faith, hope, and love, then we start to see those elements. We start to taste what's to come. And and I was I was in, um, I'll just share this quick story. I was doing a, some book tour stuff a week ago, and I was at a restaurant. I was in Nashville. I was trying a local eatery, and I got to talking with the manager, and he asked me why I was in Nashville. And I told him, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm here for a book tour. I wrote a book on saints, and I, I shared the stuff. He just looked at me, and he was like, Oh man, he's like, I haven't been to church since I was a kid. He's like, but I used to sing in the choir. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I just asked him, like, why haven't you been to church? And he, typical response disillusion with God, disillusion with Christianity, didn't like the hypocrisy, the things that you normally hear. And he went on and on and on and shared his frustrations. And I would just listen to him and I would interject stuff here and there, but I was just listening to him. And then, and then Andy and Terry, this is what he said to me. He goes, but Addison, I got to be honest with you. He said, after I've had a few beers and I've smoked a couple joints, <laughs> he's like, I start, I start to think about God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I was just, I just looked at him and just smiled, and I was like, Oh man, like, thank you so much for that open door. Let's do this. <laughs> I think, I think so much. And don't get me wrong, like, I love the facet of apologetics. It's like, let's sit down and let's have an intellectual conversation. Like, I love that. Mm. I think that's a ton of fun. But there's another form of apologetics where you're speaking to someone's heart. You're speaking to those things within yes. them that were woven into the fabric of their being, that their mental safeguards can't can't get off in time to block. And that's what I was doing in that moment. I wasn't arguing with him or trying to convince him um, that God existed. I started speaking directly to the eternity that was written on his heart. And he leaned over and he goes, do you see the goosebumps on my arms? Like, do you see what's happening right now? And I just looked at him and I said, man, God's pursuing you. He's after you, you know. And, and we had conversation. I'm like, you've chased life in these different places. You know that you didn't find what you want. And that's because you were created for intimacy with your creator. 
And we talked about that. And then I had a copy of Saints on me and I, and I gave it to him. And he's just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to read this tonight. Like, I'm so glad that I met you. I'm so glad that, that we got to have this conversation. This is someone who's been incredibly hurt by the church, been out of church for decades. And, and when we just changed the nature of the conversation, we just adjusted a little bit. All of a sudden, someone who would 20 minutes earlier would like, yeah, God doesn't exist. He's a, if he does exist, he's terrible and doesn't want anything to do with me. To now being like, man, I want to learn, learn more about this God who, who is pursuing me, who I was created to have intimacy with. It, it gets back again, doesn't it, to this idea of faith, this idea of trusting that where God's leading you is good, that he is good, and that, that in him you can experience the, the fullness of life as, as it was meant to be. And don't you think, Addison, that there's, there's an aspect of that, you know, that we even experience as, as fathers, you know, when you have those moments with your kids, right, where you're like, hey, just trust me on this, right? Oh, yeah. It's kind of funny for me, you know, with my kids, it's kind of like the classic dad moment, right, where you put your kid up on some, like, playground and you're like, hey, just jump into my arms, you know, just trust me, you know, I'll, I'll catch you. Like, as I look back on my time with my kids, you know, and you have these moments where it's just a silly moment, right? Where you're just playing in the playground, but you're, you're, your kid's learning to just trust you and that you're there for them and that and you get to experience just that beauty of life, you know, as your kid's yeah. jumping into your arms and you're wrestling around or, or whatever that might be. And then, you know, of course, as they get older, those moments become more where you're like, hey, I know the, you know, I know culture's telling you to go this way, but hey, listen, trust me on this. You know, if, yeah. you want to, if you want to experience life, it's actually over here. And I think what a beautiful way of talking about God's love language is his love language is to see you flourish. But that's only going right. to happen if you trust him. I think you're right on. And, and, and you can't trust him, obviously. You can't trust someone who you don't believe is for you. And I think that's a fundamental breakdown that so many people have when we're talking about their mm. perception of God. Even their idea of God, it's very transactional. Right, so the cross, rather than being relational, it's transactional. Yep. But when you when you see the cross as first and foremost relational, don't get me wrong, it is transactional. But that's really pointing back to Exodus nineteen and twenty and the Sinai covenant and what happened there and how Jesus had to, you know, had to fulfill that part of the covenant. But Paul makes right. the point in Galatians, he's like, hey, the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that's very relationally oriented, it's family oriented. Genesis twelve, Genesis fifteen. This is the greater covenant. This is God's play. Like God's play is to restore the cosmos through a family by becoming part of that family and then reconciling all the families of the earth. So when we start to talk about God and we start to talk about redemption and salvation and the need for a savior and these these values and ideas that are very important as we're talking about the faith, like if we don't get that fundamental truth, if we don't get that right in how we present the gospel, that first and foremost, like this is relational, like you got to get that. This is relational. If we don't get that right, then the subplots and the sub narratives become very confusing and people get stuck on those instead of seeing the greater picture. Uh, You know, absolutely. This is something that I talk so much about. If you're not reading the Bible through the lens of relationship, you're missing it. And for me, this, this is when theology really began to come alive and really began to make sense is when you start to understand what God's doing relationally. One of the things I'll often say is this, the story of God 
ends the same way it began. It, you know, it started in community. It started in relationship. Yes. And although that was broken through evil, God didn't give up on us. It's a story of a God who loves you, right? And seeks to reconcile you so that we can fulfill, once again, that purpose that we were intended for, community. Yes. And once you start to divorce that from relationship, you miss what God's been doing from the beginning to the end and what this is all about. Yes, and, and there's a chapter in the book, I entitled it The S Word, and yes. I entitled it The S Word because people don't like to talk about sin. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like a cuss word in, in so many circles, and my point is, in, in the chapter, like, we don't, we don't get sin. Like, we don't understand sin. We don't understand why Matthew one twenty one, the first mention of Jesus' mission in the New Testament, why it brings up this idea of sin and Him saving us from our sins. And if you look at sin, like, sin ultimately, when you break it down, is a violation of relationship. It is. Like, that's what sin is. It's a violation of relationship. And, I mean, I'm not going to get into hammer theology here, but let's fast forward to what Jesus did. Well, Jesus, in order to redeem us, in order to bring us back into this place of intimacy and knowing as we are known, which is the ultimate goal, what had to happen? Well, He had to save us and save us from our sins through relationship. So, since it is a violation of relationship, salvation from sin comes also through a relationship. And so, when people start to see sin like that, rather than like this arbitrary list of rules, do's and don'ts that are created by the powers that be, just depending on what culture or what church you find yourself in. Like when people actually start to understand sin as a violation of relationship, then things start to change. Like we want to have fresh conversation about sin because we were designed, we were created for relationship. Like all of us know that. And when relationships break down, first and foremost, our relationship with God and then our relationship with everyone else, our lives break down. Hey, one of the things that I love about your book is that, A, you know, I, I love a guy that I can tell is well-read. And, and when you read your book, like I can tell guys like Tozer clearly had an impact on you. I mean, and you quote people like Kierkegaard and you even you even throw some Shakespeare in there uh, and, and various <laughs> others. But, but the thing that I, I just love about this book and I just would recommend to our listeners is it is such a great introduction into Christianity. We get this we get emailed all the time from people that will say, hey, I have a friend new to the faith. You have a book that I could recommend to them that they could just grow in their relationship with the Lord. I think that this is an excellent book. What a great resource. Yeah. And and it's wonderful. You did such a great job at just really helping people to flesh out and to understand the beauty of being a Christian in a way that's understandable, yet at the same time, like I said, it's that balancing act where it's also, you know, there is some real important depth that's happening there. And you balance those two remarkably well. So, we just wanted to encourage our listeners. This is a great resource for yourself or to recommend to somebody. Yeah, we just, we highly recommend it. Thank you, Andy. That means a ton. Well, we're coming to the end of our conversation with you. We really appreciate you coming on the line with us and joining us today, Addison. So, where can listeners connect with you? And I imagine the book is available at uh, all different bookstores and stuff? <laughs> yeah, um, it is. I, I mean, it's available most places where books are sold. It's funny. My wife and I we were in a Barnes & Noble the other night. And uh, the book was there, and she went and she grabbed it, and she moved it to an end cap space because there's an empty end cap. <laughs> now, that's <laughs> like, a good wife right there, buddy. <laughs> Come on. true love. <laughs> <laughs> true 
Um, <laughs> no, it's it's available wherever books are sold. And if they want to connect with me, addisonbevere.com, um, that's a place where they can connect. They can also check out messengerinternational.org, learn more about what we do, or sonsanddaughters.tv. So, but again, Andy, going back to what you shared, like I don't want this to be just another Christian book for Christians. One of the best compliments that I've ever received was from someone on the launch team. She texted me and she said, I'm on my fourth time through this book. And what I'm most excited about is that I'm going to be able to give this to my brother who has really like is hurt, hurt by God, like hurt by quote unquote God, estranged from the faith. And I know I can give it to him and I know it's going to speak to him. And I had one of my endorsers tell me, he's like, this is the first book that's explicitly Christian. Like, you're not shy about your use of scripture. Like, mm-hmm. there's, you're not, this isn't like a DIY spirituality. Like, this is very clearly biblically based, Jesus oriented. He's like, I would have no problem giving this to someone who has no framework for Christianity. He's like, I would have no problem just handing this to them and be like, I want you to read this. So, that for me, that's what I want because I want to reach those people who are in the margins. Well, thanks again, Addison. We appreciate you. And thanks for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Mm